it needs to not be a text message. It needs to be an authenticator app that generates codes or, uh, or another secure means of communications. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In. I'm your host, Rick Jordan, and I'm bringing on an expert today in cyber. We're going to be educated. We're going to be schooled. Why? Because this dude is currently serving as a founder and CEO of both Breach Management LLC and Spiked Mace Software LLC. He is the first alumni to be appointed to the OSSM Board of Trustees, and now he serves on the Academic Committee Chairperson and is a member of the Executive Board. This dude was also a, well, this is a long bio. I love it. He's a candidate for a PhD. <laughs> Jeffrey, I hear you're laughing, man, but Jeffrey yeah. Simpson, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm pumped, man, because we're going to talk about some pretty amazing things. But first, let's humanize you a little bit because I saw, I'm, re I'm reading right now, that's stained glass artist. This wasn't in the original oh, yeah. information that I got. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, some, just some of those things that kind of grab onto you, at least for me, it was a child seeing those stained glass windows and those churches. And, and that's that love of that glass interacting with light has yeah. really stuck with me. And as you know, the, you know, the arts always fits with STEM and, and my, you know, kind of creative outlet for a long time has been stained glass. And I love making stained glass lamps and really specific pieces that bring in art and glass. And that's, that's really one of my muses there. So, yeah. That's incredible. I like your statement too, that the arts always fit in with STEM because yeah. it's, yeah. it's, uh, they're separated a lot in a lot mm -hmm. of conversations and I've never seen it that way either. I've always seen myself as the freak of the unicorn that has the bridge between mm. the left brain and the right brain. You know, I, I've been in cyber and I can, you know, throw amazing complex enterprise systems together, at least in that's what I've done. And then I'm also a musician, you know, a well, really accomplished guitarist and drummer. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a beautiful art to laying out those enterprise systems yeah. too. And I, I partially fault the education to where they may be gray it up too much, make it too boring and mathematics and engineering and software and cyber and security. It, it's a beauty in and of itself. And there's so much creativity involved. Even those things, like you just said, laying out an enterprise network and, and that flows right into playing guitar and, and other musicians, you know, same thing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus it's a good outlet because I don't feel that mm, you should ever yeah. shut a, pro a part of your brain off. Right. And that's something that's always really centered me too, just like stained glass with you, I would assume. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, my man. Absolutely. So if we can dive into some cyber stuff today, you know, I, I was told that you recently gave a lecture to the FBI. I did. Yeah. Did, so, did you give them a lecture or did you lecture them? You know, I lectured them. Yeah, I gave them a lecture. So, you know, the reason why I'm here today is because of my PhD research. And I, I kind of, you know, I'm temporarily retired. I was able to, you know, kind of go out, work in industry, start companies, do startups and stuff. Yeah. And I'm at a point in my life where, you know, I'm, I'm a lucky person. I'll say that. And being able to go back to school and get the PhD has just been, you know, awesome for me. Um, but anyway, so I'm in, you know, PhD program in computer science, and I'm researching the area of security economics. And specifically, what I'm looking at is 
potentially malicious domain registrations uh, by people that are registering these domains, trying to trick people into clicking these links, uh, trying to attack them with in business email compromise attacks. And of course, you know, there's so many parts to cybersecurity and business email compromise is one of the largest components of that financially. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of data from the FBI and their Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3. Yeah. So if you're in the United States and you have some sort of cyber crime occur, that's who you report it to. You go to the FBI and their Internet Crime Complaint Center. And so they they gave us some data that we were able to parse through and look at the actual data from some of these cases, that some of these actual uh, fraud cases from business email compromise. And that kind of spurred on some further research, you know, down the line on, on what I'm looking at. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you're really studying, uh, you know, or you're a candidate for your PhD in the economics you know, it's, it's a computer science degree, but yeah. my professor, Dr. Tyler Moore, is one of the uh, computer scientists that uh, testified before Congress in the Equifax breach. And so this area and this realm of computer science and cybersecurity is looking at the economics, you know, what motivates these malicious actors? And then what is the cost to the companies to protect themselves? How much do you spend as an organization on cybersecurity? and security in general, you know, because there is a point at which you have diminishing returns. You could spend another dollar, but you only get that small incremental point. And, you know, there's models, there's mathematical models that can show you these, these points. One of them is called the Gordon Loeb model that models out the, you know, the implementation wise, the spend, how much you need, but what you need is your estimated losses or potential losses. And when we look at business email compromise, we look at these cases from the FBI so we can get a good estimate of your potential losses from business email compromise. We can then plug that back into a number to actually say this is you know, kind of how much you should spend on security. Is there a general ratio that you see with that, you know, or you even know, thresholds? <laughs> You know, it it's, comes down really when you start looking at the numbers, a lot of common sense comes into it because, and it's, and it's different when you're, you really have to look at who you're talking about. Cause when you're looking at a small mid-sized company, you might be able to easily describe the security infrastructure that needs to go on there yeah. uh, as far as like network security, physical security. Um, and the interesting part of what I'm doing. And so, you know, maybe you have a website and as most people do, and I'll give this website from a company that's local to me, williams.com. Um, and so Williams spends all their money. They're a gas pipeline company, but they, so they're really big on physical security and of course, cybersecurity and looking at the IOT security because they have lots of devices out in the field communicating. So big focus on that, but from the critical infrastructure side and, and like the domain aspect and the BEC yeah. side, somebody could go register vviliams.com and that vv looks awfully lot like a w and now they have a domain that they can start trying to sneak into emails and try, start trying to infiltrate williams for some reason trying to get them to pay a purchase order that suddenly shows up or or you know request to check and this is important because of state actors uh, like russia and this is the exact attack that they used in the Burisma case where mm -hmm. they were trying to infiltrate Burisma. So they were using these types of uh, malicious domain registrations to trick people inside the Burisma or organization into clicking these things and giving them the credentials. 
It's interesting that, you know, because there's different threat actor profiles. That's what I was at mm-hmm. the White House advising the previous administration on last year when they were looking at interagency cooperation for these types mm-hmm. of things, too, because that's a that's a mess, as you know. You know, yeah. the, the cooperation, especially on the cyber side between the uh you know, and CISA was the way that, that they tried to start this up, and it's getting better. But the motivations behind the different types of threat actor profiles are very different. But Absolutely. Yeah. And we see that. And University of Tulsa, where I'm uh, getting my PhD at, we actually are one of the cyber core universities where they actually bring in undergraduates, undergraduates and train them in the ways of cyber attacks and defense and at one point in time, we had a, an office of the Secret Service on campus because yeah. we, they, were, they were working so closely with the Secret Service and the government. And they train these students to do that defense and attack for the United States. And they go into uh, the CIA and other organizations and do that. So in those threat profiles, that's, that's certainly a big aspect of what I do and what the other components in our you know, computer science uh, college to do for sure and it, there's different motivations that exist you know there are economic motivations for some but when you're talking about mm-hmm. state actors you know it could be just geopolitical destabilization is Absolutely. their motivation but when you look across the different types of profiles some of the methods exactly what you're talking about right now business email compromise mm-hmm. are still the same methods used across all profiles and all motivations Absolutely. And so some of the data that we received from the FBI actually had like geolocation on it. So we were we were able to tell where the attackers were located, or at least where the recipient banks, like where they were transferring the money to, also where the victims were located. Uh, and so we were able to compare that to different things in the United States, trying to pinpoint, you know, what's the main motivator for uh, being a victim of business email compromise, you know, and some of the thoughts that ran through my head is, okay, let's get a list of the public companies in the United States. And that's where all the business email compromise is going to be because they're attacking the big companies. And I was like, no, it's going to be the banks, you know, where are the banks located? Uh, so, you know, we did all this analysis and ran it through the R scripts and, and looked at everything. Uh, what it turns out is the main indicator of, of being a victim for business email compromise is population density. So there is absolutely no factor that mm-hmm. changes the your percentage of chance of being a victim of business email compromise. So the answer is it happens to everybody. Yeah. Wow, goodness. So you found mm-hmm. it more centrally, when you say population density, that was yeah. the biggest determining factor that you saw as far as the amount of attacks? No, that was where the victims were. And so, you know, Got you. It, so okay. if there was like a place, you know, was more popular for being a victim or, you know, is there a worse place to live in the United States or be or a safer place to live uh, in the context of business email compromise? Uh, so there wasn't. Uh, but one of the super interesting things, uh, we saw most of the attacks in the business email compromise attacks, uh, they tried to steal between between $10,000 and $100,000. So those are the majority of the attacks, but there were quite a few attacks in between that $100,000 and million dollar range. And what happens when you look at those numbers is statistically, these malicious actors and these attacks were most successful at around $600,000. And so those attackers who were asking or trying to steal $600,000 were statistically more successful than the ones trying to steal $20,000. And there's a lot of psychology that can go into those numbers, but but that's just astounding that, yeah, the more you try to steal, the the more successful. I mean, it just kind of, those type of economics is really, you know, when you look at it from a security context, you know, that's really important to your business. And as you know, cyber is not just 
a box that you buy. It's so much training and it's so much people, uh, people involved, you know, cybersecurity really is people. And in this case, you know, things like training your uh, employees to have a double verification on wire transfers, even though that may not sound like cybersecurity, boy, that sure is cybersecurity from my perspective and from the, the FBI's perspective. No doubt. Just a couple of weeks ago, because of measures that we recommended one of our clients put in place for the the double check measures on wire transfers is what saved them from a $258,000 fraudulent transfer. Yes, it absolutely. Was, it was so intriguing because it's exactly what you're talking about. It was VIDN. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it was the same thing, you know, instead of Williams with a W, with a W turned into two V's, the word ICE was in their name and an L was replaced yep. for the I, you know, it was just, exactly. it was incredible to see this transpire. And the human aspect of it too is something that I preach all the time with this. So I'm really glad you're on that track. That, that was 258K. I'm stuck in the 600,000 a little bit in my head on why that was the case, but I know we could go into the psychology of that. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you feel that it's because the small ones, because you see all the, you know, we've been accustomed to the small ones for so long. I mean, all the way back to 20 years ago, it was like Prince Abu Dhabi, you know, is stuck in mm-hmm. some crazy country. Will you help me get the money across to my dear old grandmother? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. We've, we've seen those forever and those were a thousand dollars, maybe 5,000, something mm-hmm. like that. But I, I mean, for me, if I would see something like, and I'm in this industry, if I right. would see something of $600,000, you know, that, that could be fraudulent, I would actually double check to see if it's for real. Like, oh, is this something mm-hmm. I really need to pay? Because this is, it seems, I don't know why, man, I, I, as I'm thinking about it, when you said it, it's just, <laughs> yeah. why does that seem more legitimate? Because even when I think of it, it right. seems more legitimate to me at that yeah, dollar well, And I have a specific case. My wife is a chief accounting officer and treasurer of a public company, publicly traded company. And so uh, she gets to see a lot and do a lot. And she's very talented and smart. I'm definitely married up. But, uh, <laughs> well, but well done. Being a, yeah, <laughs> Being a chief accounting officer, she gets to see these things. And she had a controller that received an email. And the email was from the name. And it was Gary Fields, which happened to be the CEO of the company. And it was requesting a wire transfer for about $170,000. And it said for an acquisition. Yeah. Um, they just so happened. It was not public knowledge, but they were pursuing an acquisition. And if they had not had that voice to, you know, to uh, verification on the wire transfers, their company would have transferred that $170,000. Now, if you're a president or a CEO asking a controller of your company, and if you're a medium to large size organization, $600,000 is not that much money, really. Um, It does not look different. It does not look out of place. And that's why some of those succeeded. I think on the lower end, um, there's probably a lot of embarrassment too, because the data that we're seeing got filtered through the FBI. So you can imagine if your business, let's say you lose $10,000, $15,000, maybe that's not that big of a deal. You're too embarrassed to report it. You don't want the negative PR associated oh, yeah. with it. Reputation and, damage is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Comes to this. Yeah. So we're going to see a lot of those not even reported to the internet crime complaint center. And there's ignorance too. Maybe you don't even know to report it, even though that there's a potential for recovery about that. So that's part of the education too, to know that if something like that happens to you, you know, certainly contact your local police, but also contact the FBI because they can, they can, if you contact them fast enough and it's the case of a wire transfer, they do have a success percentage with recovering some of these wire transfers, even at the smaller levels. 
That's phenomenal. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's a, a relativity that's involved too, because like, like you were saying, you know, six hundred thousand dollars to a large public corporation would not be that much money. You know, but then there's probably a threshold when you were talking about small and medium enterprises a little earlier. If you're doing ten million a year, maybe even one million a year, that six hundred thousand might look more like sixty k. Mm-hmm. Something and that actually might be something that could tank you, you know. Well, and it, yeah, you see a little breakdown in the smaller companies. Maybe you have a better grip on things. Your personnel have been there longer, or they know the system better. And the bigger companies with more moving parts, it's easier to kind of slip something into the cogs there. So, once again, maybe the psychology in a larger organizations, even though they should have the processes in place, sometimes those processes break down. And look, we're not just looking at these types of things in, you know, that being a threat. We've seen, as you probably understand, these outlook um, vulnerabilities to where people have been hacking into enterprise outlook servers. And we've seen cases from the security economics when we're looking at this, these cases, these malicious actors actually intercepting emails on the Outlook server and rewriting, you know, uh, changing routing numbers inside of emails in the middle of the email transfer. Yeah. So, you know, it's there's kind ways of around that. isn't it? <laughs> it is absolutely impressive the extent they they yeah. go to these links. But once again, the economics justify their actions. Their threat actor says they do this and they do have success or they do have a high enough success. That's why it works. You know, that's why they keep doing it. That's why it's still a threat because we haven't fixed it. No doubt. I saw that you state that the there's different viewpoints between both the attacker the attacker and the defender for cyber cybercrime economics what do you mean by that well and yeah so you know the defender in these cases it's even hard to nail it down to say it's cyber in a lot of these cases um, and the attacker may just be purely economic motivated. And that's what we see a lot with these BEC attacks. And I know with the Burisma attack, that was my primary motivation in doing that. That was a state level attack looking at trying to get, yeah. Uh, I don't, I want to stay out of politics on that one, but they, you know, that was a state run attack. (laughs) Uh, So they had different motivations, but on the defender standpoint, uh, when we look at things like this VIDN, um, the, the negative externalities may not be worth it for Williams to go out and buy up all these domain names just because there's a chance that somebody may register vviliams.com. And the attack may not even be attacking Williams themselves. The attack may be attacking Williams customers because they may try to attack the customers. And so it, depending on what other business situation. And so when you look at even um, protecting as a company against these protections against these visual impersonation of domain names. Um, do you want your IT guy or the person, uh, not to demean the IT guy or the person in charge of maintaining your domain registrations, do you want them doing all this? Or in the case of, um, in the case that you have a copyright protection in place, is it your brand protection agency that goes out and says, oh, this may infringe on our copyright. So if somebody is registering, uh, you know, something williams.com, maybe that infringes on a copyright and maybe not because there's a lot of people on the internet and a lot of people named Williams and it's very difficult. Microsoft can make a better case when people start using things like SharePoint and Outlook or Microsoft or Office 365 because that maybe falls under brand protection. But 
maybe it is a cybersecurity issue. And so there's still not a clear answer on how to protect this or who even does the protection on this. That's a huge gap too, because it, yeah. it's, uh, as I'm thinking about even large organizations or even down at the small and medium enterprise level, who's the one that ends up taking the responsibility mm-hmm. for this? And it's almost like, I mean, back in the days of, you know, when the, the IT support and consulting thing just started maybe 30 years ago, it was all a one-man shop, right? Mm-hmm. And that one person kind of did everything, and they really specialized in nothing when it came to right. technology. It was just a, so if they you know, grew up in enterprise systems, it was, well, sure, I can take care of your servers. Oh, you need phones too? You know, I've never done that, mm-hmm. but I think I can figure it out. You know, So I'll just put that underneath my umbrella. But for, for even larger corporations, I can see this being a conundrum because it's mm-hmm. not like compliance you know with hipaa or something to where you have to designate a compliance officer mm-hmm. within your organization do we have a cyber awareness officer you know that comes up and how does this conundrum get fixed right and it doesn't even stop there because you know we mentioned just these one types of malicious domain registrations where they're replacing characters Uh, but there's also other types and one of the other ways the Burisma attacked because they use multiple ways of of, uh, business email compromise attacks but one of the ways is they leverage the use of their SharePoint and so SharePoint as we know Microsoft's hosted email uh, platform but yeah when you sign up for SharePoint as a company you get a domain name like mycompany.sharepoint.com and this Barisma, Barisma subsidiary had one of those. And so they actually registered, uh, the subsidiary was Cub Energy, but they re- registered mm. cubenergy-my-sharepoint.com. And that is one of the successful attacks that got into Barisma. But that type of attack kind of plays off this third level uh, domain name. And when we talk about the third level name, I mean that, you know, that, that, that first part of the domain name that we sometimes use, like the www.domainname.com or the mail.domainname.com, that www or mail, that's that third level domain name. And so what we're also looking into is what happens when these malicious attackers start registering things like www.williams.com. So that is another way that they could potentially you know, trick people into clicking on these links. And so somebody has mailwilliams.com. And so, yeah, there's so many aspects of this that just, it just keeps going. As you know, with cyber, it's, it's kind of that fractal landscape. It's so Mm -hmm. wide and you can just drill down on any specific piece of cyber. And that's why it's so interesting to me and you and, and uh, so much to learn about it. I mean, I, I learn new things every day and that's why I love what I do in research and and probably the same with you. Oh, no doubt. And it's, it's interesting to for me anyways, the, the interesting part is more so the economics and the psychology of it than the actual technology of it itself. Because yeah. uh, the tech is just the mode, man, because everybody mm-hmm. uses tech right now. But even, like I said, across all the different threat actor profiles and all their unique motivators, the methods of attack are pretty much the same across all of them. It's like the tool, the toolbox is the same toolbox across mm-hmm. the board. And it's a, but the economics of those different actor profiles, too, do you see different financial motivators for each of those? You know, we see some differentiation uh, between the state level actors and what we maybe even call script kitties yeah. <laughs> to a certain degree. But, um, you know, we thank you for that. I haven't heard that yeah, term in a long time. From, <laughs> from some of our other research, we have actually seen some of these malicious actors um, 
algorithmically generate some of these malicious domain name registrations. And so we can see some yeah, indication that this may be, you know, maybe part of a, a hacking package or a BEC package that a malicious actor would obtain off uh, from, from the internet or something like that. Um, yeah, so there is some motivation that we'd see some economic differentiation there. Um, what is super interesting though, is this type of attack, the VIDN stuff, um, you know, started gaining popularity maybe 2000, oh, I want to say, maybe we saw some evidence 2005, 2006, and it really wasn't much there, but it really started picking up in later years, 2015, 2016. Mm. And it really just spiked. Um, and it happened the data that they were looking at when we were looking at all these uh, potentially malicious domain registrations, we actually had the name server information as well and, and where they're registered at. It turns out that a large port portion of those were actually registered through Vistaprint. And I don't know really? if you're familiar with Vistaprint, yeah. but they offer, you know, like free business cards or 10 free business cards with a domain. They were doing a promotion where they were providing a free domain name when you sign up with them for free business cards. And they were not charging the card, your credit card, until 30 days after you signed up. And so the hackers, these malicious actors, figured this out that they could get these free registrations. Um, and so we, that's what caused a big spike in this type wow. of attack. And then what we actually saw was that competitors to Vistaprint saw how Vistaprint was growing, even though a lot of that, or at least a portion of that was malicious. And they started offering the same deal as well. And so we saw the malicious actors actually move their registrations from Vistaprint out to these other competitors. And Vistaprint started like fixing that problem, fixing that hole. And so, you know, ended up within very quickly, Vistaprint was no longer hosting these type of malicious domains, but it did kind of disperse to these other name servers and other registrars until it finally kind of weeded out uh, a few years later. But, but it was so interesting to see the economics of Vistaprint offering a free domain, but not charging a credit card until 30 days after causing this increase in BEC attack and therefore causing larger theft and causing, you know, cyber insurance premiums to increase. Huh. And so there's that, you know, butterfly effect of chaos, once again, just showing its wings that this little change over here affects, you know, how much you're paying on your cyber insurance premium, which is, yeah. Were they even, I, I didn't know about the Vistaprint scenario, were they even mm. authorizing, you know, a dollar or anything to make sure they were valid cards? You know, I, I can't go back in time and, and look at that. I, you know, going back as a historian now, uh, or a researcher with the data, we yeah. can go back and, and read news articles and see what the industry thought of what they were doing at the time. But I think they were not doing at least enough validation um, or they're using debit cards. I'm not sure what the loophole was on why they're giving yeah. that those days. So, yeah. That's mind-blowing. And, of course, mm -hmm. you know, that was several years ago now at this point. Mm -hmm. And where are we at today, man? You know, what's, the, <laughs> what's taking well, place right now to register these domain names in mass? Yeah, well, the good news is there's no good news. No, uh, the the um, business email compromise is still on the rise. And so the FBI's Inter Crime Complaint Center releases an annual report. And so the attacks are growing. Um, as a researcher, you know, my ultimate goal is to be able to just, you know, say, oh, somebody registered a malicious domain name and you should 
do something about it. Uh, but it, the internet's just too broad and there's too many things to look out for. Um, yeah. So business email compromise. That's it. When you said it took off in 2015, you know, of course you and I know that it's been around for so long and Mm -hmm. what's your opinion. And I'm, I'm stating it that way, phrasing it that way intentionally, because mm-hmm. it's it's always with, with any client base that that I'm a part of. It's education. That's everything we push. And even now, coming to an email scenario to where you, we're utilizing vendors that don't just straight up block email anymore, mm-hmm. because I've determined with my team that it's more important for the person who's receiving the email to understand and, and notice some of the discrepancies that might exist with it. Because it's, it's like teaching a man how to fish principle rather than mm. fishing themselves. And it's a, it, maybe it's a bad phrase to use when we're talking about literal fishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. But rather mm. than blocking it, there's more that's going through. And now through integrations right inside Outlook or G Suite, it'll say, hey, this email looks like it has something a little funky to it. Mm-hmm. Here's what we see. Would you like to report this? Or... Mm here's specifically what we see and then maybe you can analyze it on your own you know or sure. click here to contact your support team whatever mm-hmm. else it's very educational based now rather than technologically based to where we're just slamming down the gauntlet and saying this is not going through and then we have one person that can filter through these at some point or like a quarantine report mm. who who likes quarantine reports really nobody does <laughs> it's just right. another yeah, layer and- Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge, though, because as a researcher, I would love to be able to say, here's an algorithm or here's an artificial intelligence model, machine learning model that tells you this is bad. Don't click on this. Yeah. That, that's, I'd love to be able to write that. I'd be rich if I did that. Uh, but it's not that easy because even as I've explained, there's so many different ways to do this. Um, you know, and you ask what my opinion is. It's... <sighs> It is that multi-layered approach because when you look at like a network security, I mean, you have a whitelist or you could have a blacklist and start blocking things out. You could start uh, blocking any clickable URLs in an email, Um, but it all comes down to uh, training. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of companies are moving to more secure communication methods between the vendors where it matters. And when I say a secure I mean, something that has an additional layer of authentication or at least any authentication whatsoever, because as we know, email is just completely unsecure platform. So if you're communicating things that are important to communicate, um, wire transfer IDs, account IDs, you know, look at secure communication platforms. And if that's a Slack channel, that's a Slack channel, or if that's Microsoft Teams, uh, we're really seeing more communication between companies like this. And Large organizations, and I'm talking about the largest uh, companies like Walmart, have their own communication platforms that they already have their vendors on. And so they're utilizing those type of platforms to, to perform all their communication between their vendors and suppliers on. And so that's a model that I could see moving from those big companies down into the small company. Because I really feel like there's an opportunity to guarantee a secure communication channel between companies doing business between each other uh, because email is just way too unreliable and unsecure. Yeah. I, I see the same trends myself and that those types of systems are making their way downstream. Mm-hmm. They've been used by a lot of the big corporations for a while now. And the, 
still on the inverse of that email is not going away anytime right. soon that's how that's that's how everybody <laughs> okay talk about the economics that's mm -hmm. how you market right, right. <laughs> that's if you go buy yeah. coffee like i do at big shoulders in chicago mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite roasteries man here in chicago i order five pounds at a time from them i nice. love getting their 15 percent off coupons to mm -hmm. place my next order yeah so th that's also economics but the the threat actors know this yeah. So they do. And so once again, is it economically feasible for them or is it economically advantageous for them to try and insert themselves into those type of scenarios? And so we've already seen that a little bit uh, with text messaging. And I know I'm kind of veering away from, you know, some of my research area here, but uh, in a past life, in past life in some of my startups, we, we did text message, uh, you know, a, a, a wait list for restaurants sending out text messages when your table's ready. And so I've heavily involved in text message marketing. And so the good thing in the United States is really the FCC cracked down on those type of things in the beginning. But when we see things like this data loss from Facebook that has names and telephone numbers, which is probably cell phone numbers, mm -hmm. there's a lot of data online now that means people can start sending you text messages from, you know, that may release another wave of, you know, getting somewhere that is immediately viewable by the people. Um, text messaging have like a 98% read rate within the first hour. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a, that's a concern of mine. And, um, you know, bringing that back to business email compromise and back to uh, kind of enterprises and security, um, and we've kind of mentioned the multi-factor authentication, but but when you ha you have to have multi-factor multi authentication and when it matters, it needs to not be a text message. It needs to be an authenticator app that generates codes or uh, or another secure means of communication. So For sure. I was uh, on stage a couple months ago and I said, if, if nothing else, at least use a text, but Please, God, stop using text if you have something else available to you. <laughs> yeah, and, and most of us, and, and me included, um, you know, I have a lot of security by anonymity because nobody really cares enough about me to steal my stuff. Um, I'm hopefully, you know, I'm not changing that by <laughs> being on a podcast or anything. But, but really, and most of us, and that's what it comes down to as a security researcher, you know, I understand that any data that's an electronic form can, can be stolen. Um, and so, and that's really what I want people to know and understand. And I still have data online, but you know, I protect myself in the ways I think I need to, and you protect yourself in the ways you think you need to. Uh, I'm not scared to go online. I'm not scared to have my kids go online. So yeah, right on. Same here. I'm not scared. And I, being being an expert in this field too, and somebody that's very vocal, obviously about this, I, I laugh at myself, and so do other people that work for me because things like Netflix, you know, my Netflix account or whatever, dude, they're the most unsecure passwords in the world mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I don't care. There's no, there's no way I don't have right. a phone number on there. Yeah. The only thing mm -hmm. I use it is to watch movies or whatever else, you know. So if somebody logs in and I get that suspicious notification that somebody logged into my Netflix account from the Ukraine, I'm like, okay, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to your point, you're, you're phrasing when you said when it matters, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of things that do matter, yes. especially when it comes to business email compromises, a lot of things mm -hmm. that do matter. So mm -hmm. don't just brush over it. And when I was getting to the opinion piece too, I was curious on that because from the perspective of, oh, it'll never happen to me. 
Mm. How to? We're out there. We're on a mission to help people understand that no, it really can. <laughs> it is well all the time, yeah. and it does matter because a lot of people are, you know, in this economy, maybe moving to more of a remote work situation. Maybe they're yeah. doing more, uh, you know, uh, freelancing. Um, you know, and it really goes back into understanding. You know, maybe scare you into the repercussions of when you're responsible for maintaining PII, when I say PII, I mean personal identifiable information. If you have PII on your laptop or your computer and you're responsible for that, there are legal repercussions to you losing that. Um, each of the states in the United Biden. States. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> each, <laughs> each of the states in the United States have their own um, data breach laws. And so part of what makes it challenging in the United States is if you have it, it applies to where your customers are, where the, the customers live. So if you have data from, you know, customers at five, that live in five different states and you fall into this breach uh, notification requirement, you would have to notify them differently in each of those five states potentially. Uh, and so that is something as a freelancer that you have to realize that you are legally required to maintain the PII based on, you know, where the customers uh, live and, to a certain degree, that means you might have to look at encrypting your hard drive or encrypting the data. And the BEC can happen to anybody. And even if you're a freelancer and you get an email and click on it, maybe it grabs, somehow grabs Excel files off your hard drive. And if those cell files are not encrypted, maybe they just got your customer list and you happen to keep their Visa card numbers in there because you haven't, because you're in between accounting systems and you still need to bill them. It's, it's real-world consequences, and we're going to start seeing more, uh, just like the United States has recently started you know, putting the reins on Russia for doing all these attacks. I think we're going to see local authorities start uh, bearing down on some of these cyber breaches because it's, it's starting to become a problem. For sure, once they get the right tools to do so as well. Because mm -hmm. from what I've seen as well, especially being at the highest levels in our country, l looking at this, same as you, there is definitely a gap in competency and the mm -hmm. tool set available between the federal government and of course local municipalities the local authorities mm -hmm. it's it's getting better in my personal opinion which is great I, I was laughing too because I, when I when I choked Hunter Biden's name and it has nothing to do with politics, you know, with his laptop and everything. And I saw, mm. it, you know, he's like, well, maybe it was lost. Mm. It's like it has nothing to do with Republican Democrat or whatever. It has everything to do with the stupidness of a human being. <laughs> you know, I to, try, you're you're to your point, Jeffrey. It was just it was his responsibility, no matter what. Anyways, that's a, I'll move right. on from that right. because it, it's just a human aspect. That's all it is. Right. It has nothing well, to do with who, what team he plays comes for. Back to cybersecurity like we we're talking about there's such a big human aspect in everything yeah. uh, around cyber and, and it's coming down you know you make decisions on your firewall when you set it up and you make decisions on how to secure your network and you make decisions on how are you going to protect your organization yourself against business email compromise attacks and so these are things that really a lot of times involve human decisions and yeah, so training is important. Uh, processes are important. Uh, repeatable processes and, and training is a part of that. For sure. Let's end it with this, my man, because it, yeah. it, that's a good just bookend to this. What are some realistic ways, in your opinion, that some companies can protect themselves against VIDN or BEC? Sure. And, and a lot of this is you have to know if you're a target or not. Um, and I think a lot of the people that know they're a target know that they're a target. And I say that like Microsoft knows they're a target. They are, they are actively looking at people registering domains that could be used in this type of scenario. And I mentioned SharePoint and SharePoint is a big one because 
a lot of people use SharePoint. A lot of people are used to seeing a SharePoint URL in their emails. And so that is a big one. A big risk is anything that looks like SharePoint in their email. And so it comes back to training. What can people do? It's, it's being on the lookout. Uh, there's no tools out there right now. And hopefully maybe one day I'll create tools that allow companies to go out and plug in their name and say, here's a list of potentially things you should look at. Um, so right now it's not anything really to be concerned about. It really falls into the into the realm of your regular business email compromise training, um, which is training people to look at the URLs, not just what's on on the text in the screen, but what is the actual href, which is the actual link it's going to, you know, when you have your mouse hovering over it. And there's other tools certainly that you can integrate with your email that helps out with that and, and checks those or and, uh, big things like that. But it does come back to training. And I know, you know, there's a good way to do training and a bad way to do training. I think it was GoDaddy just this past Christmas, try to do some training with their uh, employees to get them to, not click on links and emails. And so they actually sent out an email saying, Oh, here's your holiday bonus. And it was a link. And of course, a lot of people clicked on it. And it was under the guise of training for business email compromise, but maybe don't promise a, a, a holiday bonus in an email <laughs> oh that's said, you know, so <laughs> there's a good way and bad way to do the training. And so you don't want to make it boring because nobody's going to sit and listen to boring training and you don't want it to make it too, I don't know. Yeah. Too much of a requirement. It, it needs to be educational. So people learn. And that's yeah. the ultimate goal is that you want them to learn to look at links and maybe not click on everything. And it's okay to ask. It's okay to not click on the link, <laughs> I guess is the, is the best way to say it. It's okay to not click on the link. Amazing, my man. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on today. I've really enjoyed You're our welcome. conversation. And uh, where can everybody find you? I know you want a certain level of anonymity, but hey, where can everyone Sure, you know, I have a website, uh, jeffreysimpson.me. Yeah, it's with a G, spelled with a G. Um, I'm really not uh, doing anything right now. I'm finishing it really focused on the PhD. And so, you know, after that's finished up, who knows what I'll be doing. I may be going back to startups. I may be, you know, maybe getting a real jobby job again. Well, who knows? <laughs> a real jobby job. Man, right. thanks for making me smile today. Have a great day, brother. <laughs> you too, man. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.